Okay, it's 6.30 now, I can see the clock. Thanks for coming out tonight, and uh, interesting material tonight. We're going to get into some controversial topics tonight. So uh, I'll have a word of prayer, and we'll dive into chapter 7. Father, thank you for your word. I ask you again tonight that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the name of Jesus. I ask that you would do that in our hearts, that we might know you more so that we might communicate your name, your power, your glory, your plan, your purpose to those around us. And we seek you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we closed with the discussion about a mystery. I thought it was a cliffhanger last Wednesday night. Um, the mystery of the possibility that one spouse might be saved by the other spouse's faith. Paul says, who knows? Who knows? It wasn't categorically one way or the other, but who knows that if you, a believing husband, for example, stay with an unbelieving wife, who knows that your sanctification might cover her or vice versa? Who knows? And then he takes it a step further, or if that weren't possible, then your children wouldn't be sanctified. So the idea is that when a person is sanctified, which means rendered holy by the blood of Christ, and that sanctified person joins an unsanctified person, who knows that the sanctification of person A might cover, might cover the sanctification of person B. Why? Because two have become one. So does that, so let's flip it over and go the other way. Is it possible that sanctification of A can be unsanctified because they've now married an unbeliever? No. So there's the mystery. Last Wednesday night, we talked about, a, and it is a mystery. If you want a black and white answer, call Chuck Swindoll, because that's the only thing I can tell you. I don't know. Tonight, we're going to continue chapter 7, where Paul teaches us to bloom where we're planted. Quit thinking that things would be better if. I could do that when. Why don't you try blooming where you're planted right now? Be content wherever you find yourself in life circumstances. Wherever you find yourself, why don't you just start there? So here's good counsel for everybody tonight. Wherever you are right now, why don't you start where you are right now? Don't wait to where you might get someday to do something. Here we go, verse 17. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. I say amen to that, by the way. <laughs> and, and the man, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I think some things are better left just stop right there. And the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. For it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is that he keeps God's commandments. Now, I've met a lot of people that have the idea that they would serve God if. That I'll serve God if. Terry, you don't know my situation. 
That's what they'll say. You don't know my situation. You have no idea my situation. If I could fix this current situation, I'd be able to serve God. Really? You think God is unaware of your situation? You think God has lost control of your situation? The creator of the universe is unable to handle you where you are right now? Really? 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 That's the God you serve? People have this idea that if and when are the determinant of whether or not I'm able to follow Christ. Present circumstances or future positions should have no effect on my serving God today, right now. In fact, sometimes our biggest problem is that we're thinking too much about what's coming and missing what's here. You can miss what you've got by thinking, and let me take it another step. Sometimes you're looking for something big and you miss something small that was going to be something big, but you missed it while it was small. And you think that, well, that's not worth my time or energy. But that might have been the very thing that you were supposed to do that day. We have today. We must live our lives by using each day to serve Him through faith and obedience. What's Paul say? The important thing is to keep God's commandments. Now, I want to be specific with that. Because you could overgeneralize that comment. If you go up and read, he says, verse 19, For it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised Quit focusing on that side of it. The important thing is we keep God's commandments. So let's bring that home right now. The important thing. Quit worrying about what you could do if and what and when. The important thing is to obey God's commandments. So what's God's commandment? Can I give you a commandment today that has application to every believer in this room today? Yes, I can. Here it comes. Go make disciples. When you finish that one, come back, I'll give you another Go make disciples. The important thing is that we keep God's commandments. Well, I, I could follow God if. Why don't you make disciples today? Were you all around any human breathing life today? Were you around any people today? If you're around somebody today, did you tell that person? Did you, did you think that maybe today might be a good opportunity to make a disciple? The Great Commission is the idea that Jesus announced a job assignment before he left. Go into all the world and make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. The important thing, you know, what's this comment about? He's writing the church at Corinth, and they're talking about whether they should be circumcised and, or be uncircumcised, whether I should try to undo. What about, you know what, I'm in a situation right now where I'm not very effective. Quit worrying about your situation, and the important thing is to follow God's commandments. And it's not like we don't have some of those available to us. Go make disciples. It's interesting to me, as a preacher, that the majority of people in church see that responsibility falling on somebody beside themselves. Go make disciples. There's no way in the world there's enough preachers to do it. In fact... Uh, let me give you an example, okay? Uh, years and years ago, I think when I first came to church here, 17, 16, 17 years ago, um, I went to the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. I don't remember anything they taught me in there except one thing. We were in the room, and um, there was probably 300 preachers in the room, and we were taking a class, and 
um, this guy gets up in front and he asks a question. And I'm going to do it tonight. Okay, I'm going to do it to you, so participate. How many of you in this room tonight came to church, began to come to church because the preacher came to your house and invited you? Raise your hand. One, two, one, two. Y'all got a lazy preacher. <laughs> okay, okay, we got two. How many of you in this room tonight came to church, began to go to church because a friend or a family member invited you to church or took you to church? Raise your hand. There's evangelism. Only thing I remember from the Billy Graham School of Evangelism is that. And that's it. I remembered the only thing I needed to remember. You know how you do evangelism? You just saw it. That's it. A friend or a family member took you to church. You're a friend and a family member to somebody. So can I ask you a compelling question this past Sunday? How many people did you invite to come to church with you? Were you waiting on me to do that? I only got two in 17 years. <laughs> I'll be unemployed. Don't get stuck on your past and try to change it. Don't get hung up on what's coming. And don't stand around and wait for it. Use today. You're not going to get it again. Just use it. Use today. Spend it well. The circumstance of your life when God called you was not an accident. When God called me, I wasn't in ministry. I was working at a company somewhere. The circumstance of my life was not an accident. He, he was using the circumstance of my life when, I, when he called me to prepare me for that which I didn't even have a clue about. So quit focusing on the circumstance of your life when you're called. Just get about the Father's business. Don't worry about the, the circumstance becomes irrelevant. It's about the business. What's he say again? Look at 19. It makes no difference. Whether man's been circumcised or not. That was their discussion. The important thing is keep the Father's commandments. Are you doing what he told you to do? You are not where you are right now. Let's do that. Let's be personal. You are not where you are right now. And I'm not talking about sitting in a chair at 1195 in a row. Your current circumstance. You are not where you are right now by accident. You are where you are right now for such a time as this. You can read the book of Esther all you want to and say, go Esther, but the room is full of Esthers. You are where you are right now for a reason. What are you doing with it? Verse 20. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave to Christ. God paid a high price for you. So don't be enslaved by the world. 
Each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. Why does he say that? Does that sound strange? Each of you should remain as you were when God called you. If you were a slave, you think God didn't know you were a slave when he called you? When he bought you, when he purchased you by the blood of his own son, did you not know that he knew who you were and what your circumstances were when he bought you? Do you think he didn't read the fine print? Well, they're, they're, they don't have a real good job. They're not in a good situation. They're not in a good marriage. They're, you know what? They're, they've got a terrible past. You think he didn't know that when he bought you? I heard a guy one time use this scripture to say that God endorsed human slavery as an attack against the Apostle Paul and the church. Why? It was telling people, just stay where you are. If you're a slave, be content to be a slave. Be a good slave. Now, unbelievers hear the church say that and say, well, see, you people are into human slavery. No clue what it really means. Let's face it. We are all a slave to sin and its master, or we're a slave to righteousness and its master. That's, there's only two slave masters. You're either a slave to sin and its master, or you're a slave to righteousness and his master. One or the other. If slavery is to be bought by another, then praise God he's decided to purchase us with the price of his own son. Now, how does this apply to one's marital status? Because that's where he's going, okay? He's talking about slavery, circumcision, where you were when God called you. Now, how does this all apply to marital status? I told you it was going to get interesting. Verse 25. Now, regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command for the Lord for them. I see some young women say, that was close. Young women who are not married, I do not have a command for them. Uh-oh. But the Lord in His mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I'll share it with you. Because of the present crisis, now I wonder what the crisis is in Corinth that's making him refer to that. Well, I can tell you one, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. There was a man having sexual relations with his stepmother. Obviously, there's a lot of sexual immorality in the church, if I look at the content of this letter. Because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are. Who's he talking to? Young women who have not yet married. Because of the present crisis, I think it's best you stay where you are. Well, where are they? Single. Stay with me. Single. There's a crisis going on. Stay single. Stay with me. Here we go. Verse 27. Now he's going to change to another group. If you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get one. Do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it's not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it's not a sin. However, those who get married, and Paul's not married, okay? All right. But he's got some insight. Okay, some of y'all reading ahead. Paul's not married. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles. 
I'm trying to spare you these problems. Now, what's he, if you're married, he's trying to say, quit thinking that your spirituality will be determined by your circumstance. Quit it. If you're single, stay single. Be spiritual, plant, bloom where you're planted. If you're married, stay married, bloom where you're planted. If some of you, and, and look at what he says again, those who get married at this time are going to have trouble. What's he mean? I'm trying to spare you those problems. How many of you in the room, raise your hand if you've been married more than 10 years, raise your hand. So here's the question. Keep your hands up. You're all so weary, you can't even keep your hands up. How many of you in those 10 years have ever experienced trouble in your marriage? Wave your arm. If I'd have had it, you just blown my hat off, okay? Paul says this, is marriage easy? No. Is Paul against marriage? Is he, people read this and think, this man is a... He's against marriage. He's not married. He's against marriage. I've heard people say that Paul hated women. Do you really believe that? Because he wrote this. You think he, he hates women? You know what Paul's doing? In fact, if you're not getting it, you, then, you, then there's something missing. I prayed as we started tonight that God through the Holy Spirit would open our minds to understand the Scriptures. Now, what's Paul trying to communicate? He's communicating, clarifying the ultimate meaning of life. Listen, he is clarifying the ultimate meaning of life, the ultimate purpose of our existence on this earth. Is the ultimate meaning of life being married? No, it's not. It's not. Let's be honest. Would it be easier to devote all of your life and service to God if you were single? Yes. I'll say it. You don't want to, I'll say it. Would it be easier to devote your life fully to Christ if you were single? Yeah, sure it would be. Let me put it like this. We only have a short time to prepare for such a long time. We only have a short time to prepare for such a long time. What do you think 50 years? You know what we do in our American culture? Somebody hits 50 years married, we throw them a party. Give them stuff, have a celebration, drink punch, eat cake. Why? Because a lot of people don't make 50 years. But I'm going to ask you a question. What's 50 years married compared to eternity? Is that the ultimate meaning of life, is to get 50 years of marriage? Well, listen, I'm, I'm not making light of marriage. I'm not. Paul's not making light of marriage. If you think that's what it is, you're still not getting it. What's the meaning of life? If you're married 50, 60, 70 years... Then what? You better think about the then what. What comes after that? God. So here we go, verse 29. Next verse. Let me say this, dear brothers and sisters. The time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not only focus on their marriage. Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Why? Why? 
Why? Marriages, uh, possessions, weeping, joy. Why? They're all temporary. They're all temporary. Don't be absorbed with the temporary. Don't focus only. Does he say abandon the temporary? No, no. But don't be absorbed by the temporary and lose focus on the eternal. Do you think Paul lived with a sense of urgency? Go back up there and look at what the time that remains is very short. You think he's only talking about his life or he thinks he's, do you think he feels an urgency in his life? You think Paul lived as if he was only going to be on earth for a short time? I'll say it again. I'm convinced we only have a very short time to prepare for a very long time. I'm 60 years old. I don't think I've got another 60 left. Not in this body. I think I only have, listen, I think I only have a very short time to prepare for a very long time. Now you tell me I'm wrong. I have a very short time to prepare for a very long time. And what I focus on, what I spend my life on in the very short time I have left, I've got, you know, I'm a realist. I think I've got less time left than I've already spent. Y'all think I'm going to make 120? I doubt it. Do you think we should be learning something by this? If you're reading this and you're thinking about circumcision and whether or not you should be married, stay single, or whether or not, then you're still missing it. You're still missing it. You think there's something in here that the Holy Spirit can reveal to every one of us? We only have a short time to prepare for a very long time. The next verse is the summary point to all of what I've read so far. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them. And by the way, that includes your wife and your husband. You know what? They can't save you. And it's temporary. Does that mean don't love your wife, don't love your husband? Then you're still not getting it. You're still not getting it. It's temporary. It's, it's all temporary. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them, for this world as we know it will soon pass away. Is, are these scare tactics to motivate us? Or is this real? Paul gets it. That this life is fleeting. It's going faster now. At the age of 60, I can tell you my grandma was right. It's going faster now than it was 10 years ago. I have no idea how that works but it's going faster now than it used to go. And if it's going faster now at 60 than it was 50, how fast will it go at 70? I don't know. You see, what Paul said in verse 31, let me read it again, will extinguish, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that what Paul taught us in 31 will extinguish the fiery darts of Satan. Why? Let me read it again. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them, for this world as we know it will soon pass by. This will extinguish many of Satan's fiery arrows if you actually do it. What? Open-handed urgency. Now that's my phrase, and, and I want to talk about what I think that means. Open-handed urgency, which means anything that you've got, if you've got family, if you've got possessions, if you've got health, you've got the things of the world, whatever you've got, there's nothing wrong with those things. Hold them with an open hand and live your life with urgency like you don't have a whole lot of time left. 
And guess what? If that's your life, Satan will have a hard time ever getting to you. Because you know how he gets to you? That thing in your hand, you start closing your fingers around it. That, that possession that you have, you start to hold on to it. Here, here's why I want you to visualize. I'm convinced that the meaning of life is me taking both arms and wrapping them as tight as I can around this man named Jesus and holding on. The, 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 the meaning of my existence is to find him, to know him, take hold of him, become one with him. And you know when that becomes difficult? When I got a bunch of stuff in my hands. I can't wrap them all the way around them and get a hold while I got stuff. You know what I've noticed? What I've noticed? Just I've noticed. I got to let some of this stuff out of my hands to get a hold of him. One of my joys in life at this stage of life is those two grandsons I've got. By the way, there's a third one coming. He's in the oven, coming out in August. It is a boy. And when those boys see me, if I see them after church, I can tell you what they'll do. Watch them snub me after saying this. But I can walk up that hallway, and that little, either one of those little boys will run up and they will take whatever arm length they've got and they will wrap it around me as tight as they can go. They can't go very far. They can grab one of these thighs. Okay? You know what? They'll grab a hold of me. But that same child would have a hard time coming. He's, he's going to have, sometimes have to drop something to get a hold of me. You will too. Sometime you want to get a hold of Jesus, you're going to have to let something go. Now, I'm going to read this again. Here we go. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them. For this world as we know it will soon pass away. Verse 32. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided in the same way a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit, but a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I mean, it's, it's, he's right. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few as distractions as possible, with as small amount of stuff in your hands as you can get away with. This is not about establishing some religious order or set of rules, but about defining the true purpose of life while we acknowledge that life is short. Most Americans have so many distractions, they don't have time to serve the Lord. Let me tell you, the first thing I hear normally when I, or will, we've talked about this, when we go to people and ask them to participate in some ministry, first response. You want to guess? You want to guess? I don't have time. Let me tell you what the translation of that is. I've got too much stuff in my hands. There's too much stuff in my hands. I don't have time. 
Open-handed urgency is not a life of drudgery and despair. People have this idea that Paul, in his message of open-handed urgency, life short, spend it well, that that's a life of drudgery and despair. But the secret to the abundant life is open-handed urgency. It is the secret to an abundant life. Why? Because it's the only life that's going to last. I have learned that more is not always best. How many of you all have picked up on that so far? More is not necessarily best. Sometimes it's best to have less. Why? Less distractions. Let me give you a personal example. And I don't portray myself as being normal in this category, but one of my one of my releases, one of the things that I do, stress relief, to get away, I go fishing. Uh, I love to fish. I grew up loving to fish. I'm trying to teach my grandsons to fish. My kids love to fish. Audrey, my daughter, loves to fish. Uh, we, everybody but Janet. Janet doesn't like to fish. She reads a book while we fish. And um, I reached a point in my life where I went out and I bought a boat. Because I had the idea that if I want to fish, I get a boat, and I could do more fishing if I had a boat. And then something happened. I found, and, and again, I don't want to use myself as an example. Maybe I'm just weird. But you know what? After I had that boat, that, what that boat did to me? That boat put pressure on me to go fishing. And then I didn't want to fish. I found out it was way more fun to not have that and just find another way to fish. Because it became, the, the thing that I thought would bring me joy became my distraction. And it actually kept me away from the thing that I found to be most pleasing. In fact, I found it to be stressful to take that boat fishing. It was too much trouble. Where I found to just go fishing was no trouble. It wasn't any stress. But if I had to hook up a boat and I had to get gas and I had to get its supplies and I had to do this and I had to do that and I had to do this and I had to do that, by the time I got to the lake, I was already wore out. And it wasn't fun anymore. And I found out that I live in an area where there's a hundred farm ponds and I know all these people, so I just go to a farm pond, take a back chair and sit there and fish. If I get something, I'm happy. And if I don't, then I don't have a boat. And now I like to fish. The story is this, the more is not better. In fact, I'm going to tell you, I think less is better. It's better. We have this idea that the more and the more and the more, it's just more distractions. It's more stuff in your hands. It's more things that you're burdened down by. Now I've got to take care of it. Now I've got to wash it. Now I've got to clean it. Now I've got to pay taxes on it. Now I've got to put tires on it. I didn't have to do any of that stuff before. Does that go fish? In the issue of marriage, you should not feel guilty if you're married or guilty if you choose to remain single. And then Paul says something. In the issue of marriage, listen carefully. He makes a point. Don't feel guilty about being single. Don't feel guilty about being married. But he says, there is guilt in sexual immorality. There is guilt in finding somewhere between the two where you think you can play both. 
Did you hear me? There is guilt trying to play both. Next verse. But if a man thinks that he's treating his fiance improperly and will inevitably give in to his passion, let him marry her as he wishes. It is not a sin. What does that mean? Do I need to explain that? If you're dating a girl and you find that you cannot contain your sexual passion for that girl, you better marry that girl before you sin against that girl. That's what it means. All right? That's what it means. Now, what does that mean? There is not a middle. There's not a middle place. You know what? American culture, you know, nobody wants to talk about this in church. There's not some middle that, you know, I don't want to really get married because, you know, that's got all these commitment things. That's like buying the boat. Well, I don't want to buy the boat when I'll just use somebody else's boat. Because you're not supposed to use somebody else's boat. Verse 37, but if he has decided firmly not to marry and then there's no urgency and he can control his passion, he does well not to marry. So the person who marries his fiance does well and the person who doesn't marry does even better. Does this attack marriage? Absolutely not. This identifies the ultimate goal of life, to be fully devoted to Christ, whatever your circumstances. Now, you knew it was coming if you studied Corinthians, the issue of divorce. What's he say? Verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but only if he loves the Lord. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he's breathing. And she's breathing. Verse 40, but in my opinion, it would be better for her to stay single. What? If he dies, if her husband dies, now that does not mean she put a pillow over his head in the night and he stopped breathing. Let's clarify that. In my opinion, it would be better for her to stay single versus remarry. I think I'm giving you counsel from God's Spirit when I say this. Now, I'm going to ask you, verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but has to be a believer. I'm asking you, is verse 39 complicated? I'm stepping back. Is verse 39 complicated? Nobody in this room can understand verse 39. You know that's not true. Everybody in this room can understand verse 39. If you marry, it's for life. And if her husband dies, she's free to remarry under one condition. He has to be a believer. Is that complicated? I don't think so. So who should remarry? Why don't we just confront the issue? Who should remarry? Let me give you some examples. Something I've been thinking about. In the case that the former spouse has passed away, that's covered in verse 39, you're free to remarry. Okay? Your former spouse has passed away. You're free to remarry. If you're a believer, what's the only condition? He has to be a believer. 
Let me give you a second one. The divorce occurred prior to your salvation. Stay with me. What happens if you were not a believer when you were married, and since your divorce you have become a believer? Do you carry that into your relationship now? I don't think so. You ever thought about this? You're thinking about it right now. I can look at, see the look on your faces. So let's just continue with this example of verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. He dies, she can remarry. What happens if that husband and wife were neither one believers and they divorced? And now she has come to Christ as a Christian. Is she free to remarry? If she comes and talks to me, I would say yes. Number three, a former spouse has remarried. Use the same example. What if her husband has rejected her and remarried? She didn't want a divorce, but she finds herself divorced because he has chosen another wife. Is she free to remarry? If it is determined that it is of no, out of her control, and he has remarried, many would say, I would have to know the details of that situation, she would be free to remarry. What if she was abandoned by her spouse? If she was abandoned by her spouse, that he left her not to return, it would be the same as the divorce in the other category. Obviously, the fifth one is this, adultery. Jesus himself pronounces that in the case of adultery. So outside, I gave you five things. I just listed five things that would... You can take biblical precedent that a woman could remarry. What about outside of that? Stay single. Stay single. Is that complicated? See, I don't find it complicated at all. The reason I even go through this exercise and I is I don't find that complicated. I find it not pleasing. I find it doesn't conform to what people want to do. It's not about being complicated. It just doesn't conform. Now, I'll stop now to ask a question like I did on the issue of Christians suing each other in the secular court. Can anybody right now stop and see how far the church has shifted from its foundations? Because what I'm reading to you is the foundation of the church. And yet it seems strange today. Because the church has shifted so far from its foundation. What happened? The church took on the practices and the ways of the world. In suing a fellow believer the unpardonable sin. Paul specifically deals with that in Corinthians. Is that unpardonable? No. Is divorce inside the church the unpardonable sin? Listen to what I'm saying. Is divorce inside the church an unpardonable sin? No. God's grace is sufficient to cover these failures. But never forget, church, that grace is not a license to continue sin. Be careful. 
I shake my finger like my daddy shook it to me. Be careful. The idea that somehow or another, grace gives me a green light to do whatever I want to do. Romans chapter 6 says this. Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ, Jesus in baptism, we joined Him in His death? What's that mean? We died to sin. Verse 4, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also live new lives. We don't do what we used to do. We don't do what the world does. Let me give you an actual example in light of this subject. I remember specifically doing an emergency marriage counseling session with a couple one time in my office. They were divorcing and they had this arrogant attitude. I could barely stand it. They had an arrogant in advance attitude. Do you know what the arrogant in advance attitude was? And they even said it out loud. We know what we're doing is wrong. But we believe the grace of God will cover our decision to divorce anyway. In other words, it really doesn't matter what you're about to say, preacher. We've already decided we're going to do it. We know God doesn't like it. He's not for it. But we count on His grace to cover us in advance before we do it. Have a nice day. What do you think about that? Where is that fine line between grace and rant? Where, where is it? Do you, do you think there's a line? Do you, do you think there's a line? I, I don't propose to know where that line's at. It's not my job. My grace is I need, my, my job is to tell you the truth. But to have somebody in the church in advance say out loud, I know it's wrong. I know we should work in reconciliation, but it ain't going to happen. And we claim the grace of Christ in the midst of our rebellion. Hallelujah, have a nice day. There is a stigma in the church that everyone should marry. But when you read this from Paul, you would have to conclude otherwise. Do, do you all see it? In the American culture, in the American church, there's a stigma. You take a young lady that's 30 years old or a young man that's 30 years old and they have remained single and people will start to wonder, what's wrong with you? Right? What's wrong? What, what's wrong? If I read this letter to the church at Corinth, what would I find? That's nothing wrong with you. Perhaps you have found that your current circumstance is exactly where you should be. Now, for chapter 8. Whew, let's get off this other one. Food sacrifice to idol. I'd rather talk about food any day. This might be difficult for most Americans to grasp, but if you lived in India or you lived in Taiwan, for example, you would understand what I'm about to say. Some of you know Chris Sanford. He's one of the missions we support here 
we had dinner with him just a couple of months ago uh, over in Frankfurt. He told us um, that just about every piece of meat in the marketplace in Taiwan where he lives has been or is connected to some sort of Hindu sacrifice. Now stay with me. He said that there's no escaping it. As a Christian living in Taiwan, the Republic of China, where he lives, almost every piece of meat that he would purchase in the market has some association with a Hindu sacrifice. So with that being said, let me begin chapter 8. Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue, but while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. Was this an issue in the early church? What? Food sacrifice to idols. Was it an issue? Yes. Giant issue. Giant. Now, now most of us in this room today, our minds can't really comprehend this because it's really not an American culture thing. But I want to tell you, there's a root that you need to find out about. In fact, the apostles held a meeting in Jerusalem and drafted a letter to the Gentile churches clarifying the parts of the Jewish law that Gentiles were required to follow. That letter was sent from the apostles to the elders in the churches in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, through the apostle Paul and Barnabas. I want to read to you the main part of the letter for a reason. Paul, let me, let me back up. The controversy in the new church was there were Jews saying that for you to become a Christian, you've got to become a Jew and be a Christian. You had to practice the Jewish law, which included about 613 do's and don'ts. Now, the Jews couldn't do it, but they wanted the Gentiles to do it because it made them feel better that they could not both do it together. So they wanted to impose the regulations of the Jewish law upon the Gentiles. So Paul and the apostles call an assembly in Jerusalem of the elders. The elders write a letter to the Gentile churches. I wonder, and, and it deals with this animal sacrifices to idols. Listen to what... Here's my point. They took 613 rules and they whittled them down to this. The only thing they demanded that Christians, Gentiles, us, obey is what I'm reading right now. Acts 15, 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you Gentiles, that's who he's talking to, with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols. There's one. Blood, there's two. From the meat of strangled animals, there's three. And sexual immorality, there's four. Now, don't, don't make too much of the numbers, but roughly speaking, they went from 613 to four. Four things. What's the essence of these four that even Gentiles shouldn't mess with? 
What are they? Well, let's start it with the first one. Food sacrifice to idols. What's the first and second commandment of the Ten Commandments? It's about idolatry, right? Is this about food? It's not about food. It's about idolatry and the participation in idolatry. Don't do it. Don't participate in idolatry. And these meats sacrificed to idols were part of idolatry. And I'm going to get into that in more detail. But notice number two. Number two. Blood. What, what, what are you not supposed to do with blood? Say it. What were you supposed to not do with it? Drink it. Eat it. Why? In Leviticus, it says that the life of a human is in the blood. It's precious. It is life. Don't mess with life. Stay away from it. Don't drink it. You ever, you ever go to a meat processing place in America? You ever wonder where those practices came from? Well, they do. I don't want to gross anybody. If you start feeling like you don't throw up, please leave the building. But when you go to a place where they're going to butcher a cow, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to put it down, and then they're going to take its hind legs, and they're going to raise it up, and they're going to cut its throat. Why? They're going to drain the blood out. And they've got to get the blood out before the meat saturates itself with the blood. It's got to be drained out. Where did that come from? The Jewish law. Where did it come from? I just read it to you. People, want to, people don't want to connect the American culture to the Judeo-Christian value system. It's connected. We don't do blood. I mean, if you've ever... And he said, what's the third thing is meat of a strangled animal. What's wrong with the meat of a strangled animal? That animal died with the blood in the meat. It wasn't drained. Which means that piece of meat would be totally saturated in blood as you ate it. And he said... You can't eat the meat of a strangled animal because you didn't drain the blood because it died before you could drain the blood. So let's, let's go to two categories. One is idolatry. The second one is blood. A false god, idolatry. Blood, there's life. What's the third one? Say it out loud. What's the third one? Sexual immorality. Isn't it interesting? It is to me that of all the things that he put a prohibition on, it really came down to three categories. Idolatry, blood, and sex. There's boundaries. Now, and by the way, what is an idol? The real issue of this topic is to love God. Knowledge without the love of God is meaningless. So, what is an idol? If idolatry, if food sacrificed to idols became a problem in the church, what is an idol? Okay, next verse. Verse 4. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. We all know that, right? There are many so-called gods, both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But we know that there is only one god, the Father who created everything, and we live for Him. And there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we have been given life. Paul is saying that there's only one God and that idols are really not 
real. They're really not gods at all. They're really not anything. False gods are not gods. They're fake gods. So, worshiping a fake god is to worship no god at all. So, what's the problem? Please understand this. If there is only one God, then worshiping a false God is to worship no God at all. It's like worshiping nothing. So what's the problem? What's the problem? Who cares then? God cares. This issue is not about the sacrifice or the meat. This issue is about worshiping nothing when you could have been worshiping the God that made everything. It's about choosing nothing when you could have everything. Who loses? God? God doesn't lose. We lose. So if you pick up an idol and worship it, even though acknowledging that idol is actually nothing, it's nothing, it's not real, God still says don't do it. That's the foundation of this issue. Knowledge without the love of the only true God is meaningless. But here comes the however. And here's the big point. I want to tell you tonight, here's the big point. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as worship of real gods and their weak conscience is violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it. We don't gain anything if we do. Now, what's the issue Paul's bringing up? Is an idol that you sacrificed a, a lamb to, is that idol real? That idol's not real. It's false. If you're a believer... If you're a believer, let's say Terry Cooper standing there and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I know that that lamb chop that just got toasted over the fire to a false god is meaningless. My conscience might be totally clear to just eat the whole lamb chop. Why? Because I know that that's not a god at all. I know that that's just a lamb chop. It doesn't mean anything. There's only one God. So my conscience, eating that lamb chop, might be totally clear. But here it comes, here it comes. Terry Cooper, it's not about you. Paul says it's not about you. But about the other believer that is weak in his faith that's standing there watching Terry Cooper chow down on that lamb chop. Because that other believer thinks that that was a God that that lamb chop was sacrificed to. And when that other believer who happens to be connected to Terry Cooper because we're in the same body of Christ, we're in the community of believers, sees me eating it, I got a clear conscience. He sees me eating it and his conscience is defiled. What am I going to do? Look at that other guy and say, you weakling, chow down on the lamb job. Is that it? How do I respond to that weak brother who's connected to me? How do I respond? Next verse, verse 9. But you must be careful so that your freedom to eat lamb jobs 
Your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that's been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. Now, now let me pause. See, in my mind, my spiritual maturity doesn't struggle with that as an idol. But that cat beside me is. So he keeps saying, but you with your superior knowledge, because I know there's only one true God, that isn't an idol. But he doesn't have that same level of knowledge. So do I just ignore him? Remember, I'm in the body of Christ. I'm in the community of believers. I'm connected to a whole bunch of other people. I'm not singular. I am plural. I am among other people. Verse 12. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So, if what I eat causes another believer to sin, here it comes, here comes the conclusion. If what I eat, that lamb chop, causes another less mature believer to, to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. That's Paul's position in the church. Let me close by using an example that Americans can't understand because, quite frankly, this eating meat sacrifice to idols is a stretch for us. I choose not to drink alcohol. All right? I'm going to tell everybody. I choose not to drink alcohol. You might be surprised that I do not consider it a sin to drink wine as long as that wine was taken in moderation. But I do not choose to drink wine. Here's why. I cannot imagine what would happen if you go to the liquor, you go to Walmart and you see Terry Cooper pushing the cart of alcohol out of the liquor store in Walmart. What are you going to say? What are you going to say? You think it, you think it's neutral? So I choose not to drink wine. I do not drink wine. I don't drink any alcohol. Well, I did do NyQuil. So I'm confessing. I took it before I went to bed and I slept till 10 o'clock the next morning. It works. It does work. You see, it's not about me. And to me, listen, to me, if I, if I wanted to drink a glass of wine before I went to bed at night, I would have a clear conscience as anybody in this room. I don't have a problem with that at all. I don't have a problem you do that. But I have this feeling that if Terry Cooper went to the Walmart liquor store and pushed a shopping cart out with a bunch of wine bottles, there would be a less mature believer in Christ who would be greatly damaged. And I don't know that he might start drinking that wine and become a drunkard and lose his soul. So I don't drink wine. I don't drink. That's it. I am not independent of the body of Christ. I am dependent 
in the body of Christ. Are you? Do you want to be independent? You better be careful who you're independent from because the head of this body is Jesus. I close, in fact, let me say this. I didn't even put it in the scripture. The Apostle Paul in the church letter to Rome, Romans 14, 21, if you want to write it down. Here's what he says. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine. He, he doubles it up. It's better not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything else if it might cause a believer to stumble. Why? Because he understands that he is not independent of the body of Christ. He is dependent upon the body of Christ. And what if I do, if what I do affects somebody else, I'm responsible. I'm responsible for that. Finally, Galatians 2.20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live. If it's just me, it wouldn't make any difference. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in the earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. These are tough issues in the modern culture. And I understand, Lord, I see how foreign the church looks to this world. But we are the body of Christ. I ask, Lord, that by your great power and mercy you would sanctify us, render us holy, enable us to follow you, to be dependent upon you and on each other, to bloom where we're planted, to accept our circumstances, to make disciples, to live, knowing we only have a short time to prepare for a very long time. Place all this upon our hearts, I pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.